and welcome to the ECE Quality Ireland podcast. I'm Celine Govern. And I'm Paula Walsh. And today we are joined by a great guest, Meredith Rose. And Meredith is a lecturer at Nottingham Trent University. And she's also undertaking a PhD there. And part of her PhD research is looking at pedagogical leadership in early childhood education. So welcome, Meredith. Thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. So just to start off, we would just love if you would maybe give us a bit of an insight into your PhD research that you're undertaking, you know, specifically, I suppose, in relation to pedagogical leadership. Okay. Um, I suppose the story started a little while ago um, when I first joined Nottingham Trent. And uh, my background is with an NNEB, which was a nurse nurse qualification back in the 1990s. And I suppose the conversation and my career has taken a little bit of a, uh, an unconventional journey, an unconventional route, because I suppose at that time, the NNEB, the Nursery of Nurses qualification, was very much seen as something that you do because you're passionate about working with children. But that's really where it started and ended. And I suppose for me, it was always a case of that was never going to be the end. I always wanted to do something more to raise the profile of what we did and what we do still, <laughs> we're still evolving practice in early years education and care. So as my career has sort of gone on, I've become more and more passionate about making sure that people are valued and recognised and understood as being experts and leaders of practice. So as I started to do my PhD proposal, these sort of ideas and these, these elements of um, experience and practice and, and talking to other people have sort of emerged as being um, yeah this great interest in pedagogical leadership and, and where it sits within our sector at the moment um, so yeah in a nutshell um, that's sort of where I'm at at the moment very much focused on the realities of what pedagogical leadership is for people mm. in practice and um, like yourselves you know um, supporting others to become graduate practitioners. Okay. So, yeah. And yeah, can, sorry, can you just define for us maybe, you know, for our for the people who listen to this podcast, say we're talking to practitioners who are working in early childhood settings every day, that maybe they don't have a degree or a master's or anything, what pedagogical leadership in layman's terms, what it actually is? I think it depends who you talk to in all essence. It's one of those, isn't it? Um, so the last few weeks, I've been looking at pedagogical leadership with my students and almost as many students as I have is as many different definitions and versions of what pedagogical leadership is. I think it depends on context. I think it depends on country. And I think it depends what you're reading and when it was written, because as we say, you know, our sector moves so fast, you could almost ask the same person three weeks apart and they've come up with a slightly different version. Um, for me, at this moment in time, I think all the things that I've heard and seen and read, um, I'm seeing pedagogical leaders as being those leaders of change, those catalysts, those very powerful, um, passionate, pedagogically expert practitioners who are there in settings, um, suggesting changes, keeping up to date with evidence-based practice, trying things because it works for their children and their families rather than doing it purely because a piece of paper or a document or a policy says X, Y, and Z needs to be done. So it's much more focused on the people and the context 
and the children and their needs and then moving that practice forward in response to that knowing a broad range of approaches to learning teaching providing great environments for children to learn in yeah and and as i as i listen to you meredith you know it's striking so many chords <laughs> with me and when i think about my educators in in my school and what they are doing every day in practice and as you so rightly say it is the constant changing the constant mm -hmm. reflecting the constant moving things around and changing what we do because the children are different or the families are different or where they're coming from is different and i can see it happening in practice with my teachers every day mm -hmm. in reality but i do sometimes find that the language that we for example pedagogical leadership that we are now placing on what they are doing in practice is possibly creating a barrier yeah. can you does that make sense to you yeah absolutely um even even yesterday um i've got a, a group of year three students who've been dealing with this language for three years you know mm. and they still sort of resist that language they can't quite grapple with it and, and the conversation the other day was we don't see ourselves as leaders and i thought well this has been evidenced in, in many many research journals and, and articles you know when people have been interviewed and there is this resistance to accepting that leadership is in any way part and parcel of what we do as a broad discipline in education and care um, it's almost pushed towards school education and more accepted if you're going into a teaching position but more resisted if you're going into a practitioner role where perhaps the children are the main focus um, and the development of the practitioners is possibly a much lesser consideration and therefore people aren't talking about it they're not using it it's not accepted people almost shy away from it um, and I think that's a great shame because, as you say, you recognise that it's happening and people are doing these roles. They're enacting their knowledge and their expertise and they're responding to the circumstances. But you mentioned the word and it's like, no, I didn't do that. I've just observed you doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's quite profound, really, that what we're seeing, as soon as you attach a label to it, yeah it then becomes almost a reaction to say, that's not me, yeah. that's not what I do. Um, and it's interesting looking at the language. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been doing a bit of reading this week and it sort of happened to link in with what you're saying there and, you know, about practitioners' beliefs about themselves yeah. and how that impacts their day-to-day, -day. Um, yeah. you know, and even using the word pedagogy, you know, yeah. sometimes even myself and and Celine nearly go maybe we should take that out because it'll just yeah. we're afraid it yeah. will you know mm. frighten people away do you know yeah. that way whereas yeah. you know and because the, there is lots of research out there mm -hmm. showing that um practitioners beliefs about themselves impact what they do in the day-to-day -day in their practice yeah. so mm -hmm. you know if if we start putting that 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 because it is mm -hmm. quite an academic -y, wordy title on something isn't it pedagogical leadership you know you would have to wonder like you know how many practitioners before they maybe get a degree or even master's stage have come across the term pedagogy or pedagogical you know so um so i think yeah you've definitely you know hit the nail on the head there that we need to you know really 
I don't know what it is, but we need to somehow be able to get people to believe more in themselves as practitioners that to see you're yeah. doing this every day. So yeah. is the actual language. term yeah. sort of creating a barrier in itself? Mm. I think there's, there's lots of different language and vocabulary and terminology that we use and a teacher layer, it creates resistance. So I've had a conversation with a publisher some weeks ago and they also resisted the word pedagogical and leadership. And trying to put the two together um, almost created, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a ripple effect. You know, it was a case of, well, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. Because there's this fear factor that it's not going to be approachable. But of course, one of the conversations I have with my students, whether they be foundation degree, degree, master's, whatever, is you have to use the proper terminology. And the terminology is pedagogy. <laughs> Yeah. So therefore, the leadership needs to be recognised. You know, we wouldn't shy away from neuroscience. We recognise that as being, you know, a huge area of, um, you know, sort of research and, and very, very pertinent to what's affecting our, our practitioners and our children and our families. We don't shy away from that. But for some reason, attach anything to leadership and people run, you know, through the nearest gate um, and out over the fields with their arms in the air. Um, and it's quite... <laughs> It's quite unnerving, really, because it's almost, in one sense, you know, the sector wants to be recognised as being experts and professionals, but we almost have this, well, that can't be me, because that's too professional. It sounds too academic. Mm. And what hasn't been recognised is the role that they do is incredibly complex, and they're dealing with a huge amount of policy and curriculum and, you know, sort of challenges um, you know, from, well, every direction possible, including government, to change what we do. But yet the idea of leadership seems to be the one that creates the speed bumps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, hmm. yeah, from listening to you, Mary, that it, it seems like the sector in uh, where you are, in Nottingham, is very similar to the sector here. Yeah, and funnily enough, we, I mean, we've spoken to people from different parts of the world at this stage, and it seems to be all the same, that the, 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 the sector is not being re recognised as a professional education sector as it should be, and that that, that is having an impact on those who work yeah. within the sector and how they feel about their role and how they feel about themselves. And I was, I was just saying earlier on, you know, that I've got incredible um, educators who've been with me many, many, many years and do incredible work. But if I use language like, you know, you're, you're a great pedagogical lead, I know that my educators would go, oh God, Celine thinks I'm doing something different to what I'm doing. Or Celine has higher expectations of me than, yeah. than what I'm actually able to achieve. Whereas in reality, I'm just using the language that describes what they are actually doing. It's really hard, isn't it? Because I know when I spoke to my first years um, and we went through, you know, are you familiar with this language? Are you familiar with that language? What do you see yourself as right now? Do you see yourself as um, a level three student now embarking on undergraduate study? Do you see yourself as um, a complete newbie, you know, and, and wanting to be that expert graduate practitioner? And there wasn't one of them who had any aspiration at all or had ever thought about using the language in any way associated with leadership. Oh. It's, 
And I thought in any other industry, I was, I was talking to a colleague over in sociology. Um, so we're talking about social workers and people who are going into criminal justice and all sorts of things. And they do a, a very, very similar task. And it was quite stark to see how many of their students had remarked on the fact, well, at some point, I'd like to get into leadership or management, or I can see myself moving over here. Not one of the early years or the early childhood had recognised and articulated that, you know, the, the common response was, I want to work with children. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that has been influenced by how society views the role itself. Mm. I was literally about to yeah ask you about yeah. that. I was literally going to say, say that exact thing. I was saying, well, yeah. that it must be that underlying thing there that, yeah. you know, there is that disconnect. I think in understanding of what we do and what we're perceived to be doing, um, yeah. you know, and that even as people, I still think, and at the risk of, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, sound controversial or whatever, but, at, you know that maybe there's still that feeling that people come into the sector because they couldn't maybe go into primary school teaching or they yeah. were, they, you know, as yeah. opposed to, so we, so that's something I think we need to look at, like the motivation behind yeah. people coming into the sector and we need to somehow yeah. try and build up that societal perception of us as professionals, you know. I think there's, there's sort of two things there. I think whatever universities, and I'm being controversial now, automatically give students a place on an early years course when they haven't got into a primary course you are automatically setting the standard as you are lesser than your first choice yeah and then some of those students didn't want to do early years they wanted to work with primary school children so then it becomes a second choice all the way through mm. and i think it's it's always a risk factor when there's a default position to downgrade which is is what they're told well we have another offer for you and it's a lower UCAS point tariff yeah mm. <laughs> whatever that conversation happens rightly or wrongly you know the message is early years is easier than primary yeah and I mean we have that over here as well you have UCAS exactly. and we have, yeah we have the central yeah. applications office CAO yeah. And I mean, the maximum points, points for medicine are 625 or whatever. Some of the primary school teaching courses are not that far behind them and they're in the yeah. 500s, but you can do an early years level eight honours degree for 380 points. So yeah. you could be looking at 150 points less. And yeah. as you say, what you were doing then is even in academia is you were making that course less valuable. And yeah. so therefore it's less, the students who do it are in some sense less valuable and so therefore the job they're going to do is less valuable to society and yeah. that is that is a huge um problem also and now i'm going to be controversial ladies also the price tag that we put on these jobs is causing a huge problem and i know you have the same situation yeah. over there across the pond is that they are pay i'm i'm also a secondary school teacher and i am paid significantly more than um yeah. teachers in the early years sector and yeah. that's a problem i think yeah the, the last sort of the last conversation i i had about um yeah sort of pay and recognition and status and value was, was very much about um, just picking up on that that teacher word mm. so whenever teacher is associated with early years you are paid more if you're an early years practitioner 
you're not yes if you're a level three you're paid just above minimum wage here if you're a graduate you might be paid 10p more an hour more than the level three so there's still this huge disparity between the labels that we use, the roles that are, um, you know, sort of assigned, and then the value that we place on those. Um, you know, most people recognise, if you go onto the, the street, most people will recognise, I'm a teacher. I sort of know what teachers do. If you say you're a practitioner, perhaps the nearest thing they've got to that is a nurse practitioner who does the things you know, that are um, absolutely fundamental for keeping the healthcare system going, but they don't even necessarily understand practitioners in early years. Well, what do they do that's different to teachers? So there's, there's this huge sort of hierarchy and there's this misunderstanding and misalignment of the expertise. A teaching expertise is different to an early years practitioner expertise. We're coming, it, it's apples and pears, isn't it? Yes. Um, and, you know, far too often, I hear our practitioners say to other people who aren't familiar with us, like, well, it's basically a teaching job. It isn't. <laughs> if you've trained as an early years practitioner, be proud of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people, inform people, bring them up to date, explain why you as a play-based pedagogical leader does what they do and make the decisions that they do. And we try and help students sort of justify what their job is. But you think this is an uphill battle after a 12 hour shift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people don't necessarily have that um have the wherewithal to do that to keep the fight going. Yeah, they sort of just give up and just say, Yeah, okay, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or they go and work in another sector. Yeah, and we have a huge issue with that too here, as yeah. I know, and I think I think funny thing is and well not so funny I suppose is that like it seems just globally the issues in the early years sector are the same everywhere you go you know which in some ways is frightening because you know here we are in Ireland thinking if we just get the people in Ireland to recognize what we do and then in the UK if you just get the people in the UK to recognize what you do but actually everyone in the world seems to <laughs> not understand yeah. if you know but um but just getting back to the pedagogical leadership a bit more specifically then do you know um, we were talking about the language and myself and Celine were chatting before this and we were looking at our thinking about our um, curriculum framework here and our quality standards um, mm. here, um, our policy documents and stuff. And they don't talk about pedagogical leadership, you know, but when you look at what they expect us to do, it is pedagogical leadership. So, you yes. know, yeah. surely it needs to start maybe. Is that where you would like yeah. to see it start in policy? Yeah, I mean, I did a bit of um, a bit of a comparison a few weeks ago. So I looked at Scotland, Ireland, and England, and in all the documents, Scotland has got the most sort of recognition for pedagogical leadership or leadership. Ireland, you have got quite a lot. <laughs> England has got very little. <laughs> it seems to be hidden in a cupboard somewhere, uh, but it certainly isn't being readily discussed. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that isn't necessarily discussed in policy. It would be useful if we start using that language so that people filtering that and then using it to, you know, sort of develop their own practice, use that same terminology. But I think the other thing is it needs to be included in training, in qualifications, whether that be level three and that introduction to, you know, sort of um, unsupervised practice. Um, and into degrees. Um, I think it needs to start right in week one, 
of, you know, actually, if you become a graduate or if you're going into practice, you have an influence on children. And therefore, you are a change agent. You are a catalyst to respond to those children. So I think I think there is policy, but I think there's almost the flip side of academia pushing the policy um, and making it a very relevant conversation for those graduates. I mean, ultimately, they're of an age where they can vote. Um, and hopefully, if, if they become empowered and confident and passionate, they might be in a better position to advocate for both themselves as an industry and as a, you know, a group of practitioners, but also then if the practitioners are stronger and they've got that real joined up thinking about pedagogy and what their beliefs and their values are, the evidence suggests that that's going to be passed on to the children. And okay. that's the quality outcomes. Yeah, and I'm listening to what you're saying. And, and you know, I think your level three is equivalent to our level five, Paula. Am I right in saying that? I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So listening to what you're saying, you know, and that we need to give them the language and we need to make them aware that as a level three or in your case and five in our case that they have got the ability to be mm -hmm. to be to, to to be pedagogical leads what i'm wondering is in in practice then should we be labeling one person as the pedagogical lead mm -hmm. or should everybody be taking a yeah. responsibility it's because i am noticing the way in services in Ireland, who um, consider themselves very forward thinking and whatever, that they tend to be labeling a person as the pedagogical lead. Is that the wrong thing, I'm wondering? Um, I don't know. I, I suppose just as much as there's many different versions of pedagogical leadership because of the context, I suppose mm -hmm. it depends what's going to work for each setting. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a great believer in sort of prescriptive, it's got to be this or it's got to be that. But yeah, I same as. Yeah, I suppose it's it's one of those things with what's comfortable for those people that are in that team, in that community of practice. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the way that I'm talking to students about pedagogical leadership at the moment is along the same lines as shared or distributed leadership, as in everybody in that team is pulling together in the same direction because they have the same notion of what is valuable for those children, those families that they're working with. And they're heading together as a group of very skilled practitioners together over there. <laughs> no one of them can pull it. It's all got to be together. They all you know, possess a different set of skills and competences. They've all got different ideas. That's lovely. But that makes the team stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's very much how I'm sort of suggesting to our students at the moment that we think about team working. There isn't one lead because the burden of that lead can be quite cumbersome. And I think that's perhaps where some of the resistance comes. I don't want to lead. We know what happens to leaders. We see it on the TV. Thank yeah. you, but no thanks. What I want to do is work with children. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's that push. So I think it's it's interesting that once you get that confidence in a, in a team, it's less onerous on one person, but actually it has layers and layers and layers of benefit because you're never making a decision purely by yourself. Mm. Mm. You've always got a community of practice around you to bounce those ideas off and almost articulate and justify why it's going to work <laughs> or yeah. what the options are and work through those challenges. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think, yeah, you're dead right. I think, you know, 
to me, you know, I think we need to be sort of thinking about pedagogical leadership as something that is embedded in everything that we do, as opposed to a separate thing that, okay, now we have to do our pedagogical leadership. Now we have to assess, you know, that it's just part of an intrinsically part of what we do. And I think to do that, we need to, as you mentioned earlier on, be bringing those concepts in at the level three or the level five here so that people are coming into the sector at every level aware of how how things go aware of what the expectations are and aware of the language and the terminology that you know belong in the sector yeah that exposure to Mm. this is what it is if we start at the beginning nobody knows any different but it's going to take a long time to change that culture and we notice that when our students go out into practice and they go into placements and the, you know, the, the trainee graduates will be going out and introducing things like pedagogical leadership and the mentors will go, oh, what's that? And there's that sort of resistance to say, well, we weren't taught about that. Well, no, you perhaps weren't. It's now labeled as this, but I can see that your practice has these layers of, of pedagogical leadership. So yeah, it's gonna take a long time. It's, yeah. it's like anything else, it's, it's not, um, it's not a quick fix because it's going to take generations of whoever, new graduates, new level fives, new level threes, to be accustomed to using this language and be confident in what they're saying. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of it, isn't it? I think, you know, it's confidence and it's um, knowing that what you're doing is right mm-hmm. and, and not being afraid to verbalise that and to speak about it and or not be afraid to ask questions you know and i'm just thinking you know i think an awful lot of the 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 resistance is because we don't have years and years and years of early years classrooms and experience to look back on and to reflect on so we tend in the sector to have a tendency to keep looking and remembering what our own education experience was like in the primary school or secondary school and because of ratio differences what we're used to is one teacher with a class. We're not used to these shared roles. And I'm seeing this even at secondary level where we're bringing in huge amounts now of team teaching. And even at our level, you know, it had to be pointed out to us this year that if you're allocated as a team teacher in a classroom, you're not just there to hand out the other teacher's handouts. (laughs) It's not their class. And you're just, you know, you know, standing at the back kind of looking good, that yeah. you are teaching together, you have a dual role. Yeah. And it has taken us, you know, yeah. time to transition. Yeah. And when I think about the ratios in early years, that's exactly the way those classrooms are operating. I've got a, a classroom of 22 um, students and three yeah. teachers. And there is a tendency for them, I can hear them sometimes saying, well, who's in charge today kind of thing or who's leading today and mm. then the other two are kind of you know and they do take turns but instead of that what they need to be doing is trying mm. to move in and i as the leader need to be giving them the language and enabling them to take mm. on those shared roles and mm. um, that are all of equal value i think it's really hard because the models that we have of leadership and, and the, the sort of leadership that generally the public are exposed to is, is what we see on tv which yeah. is fabulous at the moment um you know the news is full of leadership debates and unfortunately there's always one person with that leadership title and as you say we're not used to having shared leadership the, the yeah. sort of the traditional business models 
the models that we're used to seeing and hearing about is one person and their head is you know raised above the parapet and they're the person who tells everybody else what needs to be done and there's a team around them but ultimately it isn't shared leadership and in the way that we're talking about it when it comes to pedagogical practice and, and those sort of working environments where we've got numbers of children and numbers of practitioners and parents you know to consider in there as well so it's yeah. it's yeah it's quite a different discipline um i've sort of avoided using the word sector um i want to really you know sort of push in the word discipline because we are an expert area um and i think the more we use sort of those words and, and you know sort of valued recognition more people perhaps will also start <laughs> using those words and start thinking about things differently um wow. it's yeah it's not going to be a quick quick conversation is it <laughs> no but it's it's super interesting and yeah we, it's something that it's it's great mm. to get the opportunity to sort of take the time to elaborate upon it you know um now i know that we're going to run out of time but i'd like to ask one last question if you don't mind that we ask all of our podcast guests and it's really just you know in relation to your sector um yeah. or the sector generally whatever um if you could change one specific thing what would it be the pay and status and recognition that working in play-based pedagogy is afforded because the range of roles and skills and care and education that is given is absolutely invaluable. We've recognised it with nurses and doctors during the pandemic. What we haven't done is looked at the other care industries, as we're now seeing with early years education and care and the care services. So I think there's a double whammy there. I think anything with care in it <laughs> has... Um, has need to be focused on and better recognised for pay and status. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, Go ahead, Celine. No, I was just going to say, you know, you're not the only one <laughs> who put that on your wish list. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a universal want. And you know what? You know, we could talk about this till the cows come home, but I agree completely. And I and I know Paula does too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Time is, is running against us. But like we really enjoyed chatting with mm. you, uh, Meredith, about this topic. And, um, you know, maybe down the line when you're when you're, you're, you're done with your research, we might have a chat with you again. <laughs> about Absolutely. It. It's been, yeah, it's been fabulous to be able to yeah, talk to other people in the sector that are, are just as sort of passionate about keeping up to date as well. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's Thank been a pleasure. You. Thanks yeah. so much for your time, Meredith. Um, and for anybody who's listening, we were speaking to uh, Meredith Rose from Nottingham Trent University about pedagogical leadership. And this is the EC Equality Ireland podcast, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts really now. So until next time, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.